Good evening. It's 13 o'clock. This is Radio Clerkenwell 666 FM. Hello. I am Stephen Coates of The Real Tuesday World. It's Valentine's Day 2021. Are you in love? Now, a few years back, I wrote a whole album, recorded a whole album on the eve of Valentine's Day. And at that time, I thought the world was going to end. It didn't end, did it? Although it is kind of on pause. But listen, this is a broadcast from Clerkenwell. And it's a broadcast which is about love, kind of. It's about time as usual. And really, it's about family. Now, Hugh Kingsmill said, Friends are God's apology for relations. That's a little cynical, isn't it? But, you know, they do say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. No, I love my family, but not all families love each other. And in fact, if you want to hear a story about two brothers who definitely did not love each other, I suggest you listen to the podcast, or the oddcast as I call it, The Hermit of Grub Street. Now, maybe we can't choose our families, but we certainly can't choose our ancestors. Not unless we have a time machine. Now, of course, there is a time machine in London, in Brompton Cemetery. Listen to my oddcast the Brompton Time Machine to find out more. But to return to the subject of ancestors, I have a very odd forebear, and I'm going to tell you about him today. And it's a very appropriate time to tell you about him, because he was known as Romeo Coates. And on Valentine's Day, who do we think of? But lovers, star-crossed lovers. And who were some of the greatest star-crossed lovers of all literary time? But Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet. When I mentioned to friends that I was making a podcast about strange ancestors and invited them to send me any that they had, little did I know that I would be inundated with strange stories. Okay, here's Kim, for instance. Kim said that one of her forebears was a bear wrestler. Great-uncle Floyd Stanton, her grandmother's brother, a professional bear wrestler. That was allowed back in the day, but thankfully, not anymore. Quite right, too. David Shea's great-grandfather smuggled guns into Ireland in the years before 1916. He grew his own tobacco. He rode a bike with a candle in a jar for a light. He picked up horseshit from the street, which he put in his pocket and brought home for his garden. Yuck. He peed on his tobacco plants, as he believed it helped them grow better. I want to share a doobie with him. David said that his uncle is also a character who, amongst other things, ran a pub in Ballyferreter in Kerry, where he put up a reward for women to go topless. He made the press over this, threw a priest out of his pub and wrote a play on the back of it. He also paid people to make salacious sexual confessions, which were recorded and subsequently published. He was sued by the Archbishop of Dublin, and all copies of the book were pulped. He got David and his sister, that's his uncle's nephew and niece, to sell condoms door-to-door. Phew. In Ireland. Nicole, on a slightly cleaner subject, mentioned that she has a bit of Abraham Lincoln in her. Lucky old you, Nicole. Pete, said that back in the 20s, his great-aunt was the first woman in the UK to qualify as a professional masseur. She worked at a public baths in East London and had to go to work in the morning walking past women with placards saying, keep your hands off my husband. We'll have more strange stories about friends' ancestors later, but for now, let's return to the subject of mine, Romeo Coates. 
We all hear stories about strange family members and ancestors, of course, but I really got interested back in the day when I was in my flat in Clerkenwell, looking out of the window at the streets below. And I noticed there were people gathering around a particular spot. They are what they would like to call themselves time hunters. Other people call them time vampires, time leeches, you could say. And if you don't live in London, I suspect there are time hunters, time leeches in your city too. But if not, this is how it works. When somebody dies violently uh, on the street, there is a small puddle of psychic energy left behind. The more violently that they die, the more intense is the puddle of psychic energy. And these puddles of psychic energy are also known as time puddles. Why? Because for the initiated, for the sensitive, if you are able to walk through or stand in this time puddle after this violent death has occurred, you can get access to the past via a series of visions. Some people said that in the old days, very acute time hunters could travel to the past. But I'm not sure about that. That sounds a bit unlikely now. Well, this particular day, there had been an accident on Clerkenwell Road, and sadly, somebody had died. Uh, and after all the police and medics had been and taken the dead person away, and by the way, I should say that it's been said that there are some particularly vampirish time hunters who've become police officers or medics themselves to get early access to time puddles. Well now, maybe you're thinking, as I do, that all this is just some crazy fantasy. But on this particular day, as I was looking out of my flat window down towards the street, I did notice there was a little knot of people hanging around where the accident had been and where the deceased had been taken away. Later, I went down myself, and even though I don't really believe in this stuff, and I certainly don't regard myself as being psychically acute in any way, I couldn't help but go and wander over and stand in the place where the accident had been myself wait to see if anything happened. But nothing did happen. There you go, I thought. I knew it was bollocks. Or maybe the energy's run out. Or maybe I'm just not sensitive enough. There was an odd moment, though, when I looked up at my flat and I thought I saw myself looking down at the street. But I put it behind me and I went to catch the bus. But as the bus came, something strange did happen. For a start off, the bus itself looked much older, like a vintage bus. And on the side, where there's the advertisements, there was a bill poster for the film Black Narcissus by Powell and Pressburger from 1947. And as I mounted the bus, I noticed something else strange. All the passengers on it seemed to be dressed in vintage clothes. I just assumed that there was some sort of cosplay conference going on somewhere in town. The second strange thing that happened was that as I was climbing the stairs to the top deck, I had the distinct impression that the temperature had risen and also that I could hear not the sound of the engine of the bus, but the sound of the sea and the sound of seagulls. In fact, I had the distinct impression that I was not climbing the steps on a bus, but that I was climbing the gangplank to get on board a ship. And the ship was called the Narcissus. As I sat down on the top deck, the reverie increased and I had the distinct impression that behind me was a manservant pushing a large set of suitcases. And when I looked at the name that was on the metal plaque on the suitcases, that's when I realised that it was time for me to research and investigate the story of my forebear, Romeo Coates, or Robert Coates, as he was born and christened in 1772 
in Antigua in the West Indies. Robert Coates was the only surviving child of nine born to Alexander and Dorothy, wealthy owners of a sugar plantation. Now they sent him to be schooled in England where he developed a taste for the dramatic and also a desire to join the army. But there's no way that Alexander, his father, who was rather domineering, would contemplate such professions for his only son. So Robert returned to Antigua and started to work in the family business. But by the time he was 35, both his parents had died, leaving him a very wealthy man with a huge stash of diamonds. He didn't really fancy carrying on being the owner of a sugar plantation and who can blame him? So he did what many wealthy youngish men have done before and since. He decided to follow his dreams, to follow fashion, and he embarked upon a ship to London. And that, of course, is where I connected with him, by means of a reverie possibly induced by a time puddle. When he arrived in London, he got kitted out in all the latest fashions, and then headed to Bath, which is a town in the southwest of England, which still, as was then, a very posh, genteel, sedate sort of place. And there he began to live as a dandy. And this was the Regency time when there were many young dandies about but he seems to have been a particularly dandyish dandy. He loved to wear furs, no matter what the weather was, hot or cold, and he would appear in the pump room and the assembly rooms in the evening with a bright blue coat, yellow breeches, and a multicoloured cravat, and a feathered hat. His garters and his shoe buckles were garnished with hundreds of diamonds. Even his cane was topped with a huge diamond. Apparently, one observer noted of him, he was as if he was surrounded by a halo of rainbow-changing colours, like those of the Antiguan moonlight. That's how he gained his first nickname, Diamond Coats. He also had a carriage, which he designed himself, a two-wheeled chariot shaped like a kettle drum, drawn by two milk-white mares, with his mascot and his motto on top, a crowing, fighting cockerel with wings outstretched, underneath which was written modestly, Whilst I live, I will crow. The sedate citizens of Bath were bemused, beguiled, bedazzled and bothered. Who was this man? They knew nothing about him, apart from the fact that he was obviously very rich. They considered him what we would call, I suppose, a narcissist. Now, we hear a lot about narcissists these days. Perhaps it's because we've been living in the age of Donald Trump. And, of course, psychologists would say that a narcissist is somebody with an inflated sense of self-importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, and a lack of empathy for others. But I prefer to think of it in its original sense, in the Greek myth of the beautiful boy who became a flower. Narcissus was the son of a river god, and a nymph. His beauty was so striking, so alluring, that anybody who met him fell in love with him. He was a hunter, and he would roam in the woods. One day, he was spotted by another nymph called Echo. Echo fell deeply in love with Narcissus, and began to follow him. He was aware of her, but he had no time for her. He was much more interested in himself and what he was doing. And though Echo followed him and pleaded with him to love her, continued to ignore her. She declared herself to him. She made herself vulnerable to him. But Narcissus, in his callousness, and his coldness, and his self-centeredness, continued to ignore her. 
In despair, Echo roamed the valleys and the hills, crying out, and withered away until there was nothing left of her but a voice, an echo. Meanwhile, Narcissus was sitting by a pool in the woods. Looking down into the water, he saw his own reflection. Some people say that he didn't recognize it was a reflection. He thought it was a beautiful boy, a boy that he fell in love with. And in despair at not being able to embrace the beautiful boy in the water, he himself withered away and died. I have another ending to this story. Could it not have been that the pool which Narcissus knelt by was in fact a time puddle containing the psychic energy left by the death of Echo? And that in looking into the time puddle, Narcissus saw himself as he was in the past, younger and more beautiful than he now was, and unable to face the prospect of ageing and growing old, he chose to die as he was at that moment. Let's leave Narcissus turning into a flower there and return to the early 19th century to Fashionable Bath, to a restaurant in Fashionable Bath, where Robert Coates is sitting at a table and you can decide whether or not you think he was a narcissist. Robert appears to be rehearsing lines from William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet when he's overheard by a man called Price Gordon. Price Gordon notices that Robert is getting some of the lines wrong, so kindly intervenes to help by correcting him. Robert responds with the following words. Yes, yes, I know he wrote it that way. I'm improving it. You see, even at that stage, his self-confidence was immense. Now, Gordon, who was a man who was in need of cash, instead of responding to this as you or I might, and thinking, what a tosser, and backing off, saw that it was a situation he might be able to turn to his advantage. So he began to curry favour with Robert, and in fact, he offered to introduce him to his friend, the manager of the Theatre Royal in Bath, William Wyatt Diamond. Robert, who was delighted, immediately declared to Diamond that he was more than willing to play Romeo in a production of Shakespeare's play at the theatre. Diamond, understandably, was rather reluctant, never having experienced Robert's acting skills, but he was persuaded into it by Diamond and by Gordon on the basis that they could guarantee a full house. He cautiously agreed, no doubt swayed by the obvious evidence of Robert's wealth. Posters duly appeared around the city, announcing that on the 8th of February 1809, just before Valentine's Day, a new production of Romeo and Juliet was opening and the male lead Romeo was to be played by an amateur actor from the fashionable world, the notorious dandy Robert Coates. Well, word spread. A buzz went round town and the seats began to sell. Now, on the evening, the theatre itself was packed with curious people, so much so that many had to be turned away at the door. When Robert entered onto the stage, the audience were astounded by the vision before them. It was described by an observer as one of the most grotesque spectacles ever witnessed upon the stage. He was wearing a spangled coat of sky-blue silk, crimson pantaloons, all the diamonds as usual, plus a huge baroque wig, and balanced upon top of this was a white-trimmed hat with plumes of ostrich feathers. Robert took a rather nervous bow, at which the audience erupted into peals of laughter and roars of approval in equal measures. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever been on stage, but I've walked the boards a few times, and I think for most of us performers, if we received a reception like that, we'd probably beat a hasty retreat and call it a day, but not Robert. He proceeded, and the play, the way he played it, was probably not the way that William Shakespeare had ever intended it to be played. He would forget his lines, so he would just make them up. Or, as we've seen, if he thought they needed improving, he would improve them. He would also whisper some conspiratorially to people in the audience that he knew in a sort of mini private performance. And during this famous scene, you know, the scene in Romeo and Juliet, the painful, sad scene between the two lovers, he turned away from Juliet, pulled out his snuff box and had a pinch and then offered the snuff to a number of ladies and gentlemen in the audience. The public loved it, as you can imagine. So he took this as a sign of his great acting talents. Apparently his costume was so tight that it made it very difficult for him to move around the stage. As you can imagine, that added to the amusement, particularly halfway through an impassioned speech to Juliet declaring his love. The seams of his red trousers burst asunder, revealing a quantity of white linen sufficient to make a flag. After Romeo's death scene, apparently the audience was so delighted that they shouted out, Die again, Romeo! And Robert, seeing this as a sign of approval and always mindful of the pleasure of his audience, obliged, not once, but twice more, accompanied by heart-rending groans, though he had to take his hat off to facilitate the process. He was about to attempt a third encore, a third death, when Juliet herself reappeared back from the dead to stop him. Mr Diamond, the theatre manager, not quite sure whether the evening had been a roaring success or a horrible failure, decided it was time to draw the curtains, and he brought the play to a close. That was still not enough to stop Robert, who apparently ran around, hanging from the boxes and declaring, Didn't I do well? And that was how Robert Coates became known as Romeo Coates. Now, I don't know how much of Robert Romeo Coates's DNA I have. I certainly am the first member of my family in recent years to attempt to entertain people from a stage. I wish that I had Robert's self-confidence and defiance of convention, because this was just the beginning for him. Buoyed by the success of his debut in Bath, he was convinced that he was one of the best actors in the country. And in fact, he went on to tour the country. If some theatre manager wasn't that confident or keen to have him on, he would just bribe them. After all, he was very rich. He loved dramatic death scenes. In one particular incident, he tried to crowbar open Juliet's tomb. And in another one, the actress who was playing Juliet was so embarrassed that she clung to a pillar and refused to carry on. The audience's response sometimes was delight, sometimes was anger or embarrassed jeering. Sometimes the theatre managers had to call in the police. But if Robert thought the audience's catcalls were getting too much, he would turn to them, he would turn on them, harangue them in turn and inform them that he was not getting paid for his performance, 
and it was all in the interests of charity and art. Apparently, after another performance in Surrey, several audience members had to be treated for excessive laughing. Now, his fame spread throughout the UK, and that, of course, had the effect that his appearances became very popular. He could sell out shows because people would come to see whether he really was as bad as they'd heard. Was, in fact, the worst actor in England. But he had supporters amongst the high and mighty. The Prince Regent, the future King George IV, was a big fan. Mind you, his father was mad, so he was used to seeing strange sights. But around 1816, Romeo Coates finally decided to call it a day. The audiences had even grown tired of laughing at him. Actresses would no longer appear with him. Theatre managers, perhaps cognizant of their future reputation, declined to host his productions even when he attempted to bribe them. This may be because his money was finally running out. So Romeo took his final curtain call. He had to head to France to live in some reduced means for a while, but there he met his future wife, the daughter of a naval lieutenant. And when they returned to England, they moved to London, where they took a house in a square, appropriately enough named after Robert's hero Romeo, Montague Square. Now, whether or not you consider Romeo, Robert Coates, to be a narcissist, he avoided the fate of Narcissus. He settled very happily with his wife, Emma. They had two children. And he seems to have decided to grow old gracefully. He certainly lived a very quiet life from this time on. He died in London rather tragically in 1848 after a traffic accident. He was caught and crushed between a handsome cab, a taxi we would call it, and a carriage as he was leaving a play at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane on 15th of February, the day after Valentine's Day. What was that play? Of course, it was Romeo and Juliet. Now I was reflecting on all this, on the story of Robert Romeo Coates, as my bus journey came to its end. And where should I find myself? But in Kensal Green by the cemetery. I took a walk in the cemetery to find Robert's grave. A very modest stone it is too. Not the sort of exuberant tomb that you would expect of a wealthy dandy. I think we can be confident that by the end of his life, Romeo Coates was happy to be just Robert Coates. As I stood looking down at the flat gravestone of Robert, half buried in the grass of Kensal Green Cemetery, I couldn't help but reflect that every single tombstone in the cemetery is like the last page in the last chapter of the story of somebody's life. All those stories gathered together. A puddle began to form on the stone of Robert's grave. And as I looked into it, I could see myself reflected, just like Narcissus in his pool. Perhaps the time puddle that I'd stepped in in Clerkenwell was now fading away, but this was a time puddle of a different sort. For as the water rippled across the stone, I saw different versions of myself, a much younger version, a much older version. I couldn't help but reflect that we do inherit certain things from our ancestors, don't we? Sadly, we didn't inherit the diamonds or the wealth. But I like to convince myself that possibly I inherited a little bit of Romeo's dramatic pizzazz 
if not, sadly, his apparent immunity to the disapproval of audiences. No, you wouldn't reject me, would you? I have, after all, got a bit of the narcissist in me. I suspect we all have, and maybe that's a good thing. On this day, of all others, if we're not in love with somebody else, we could give ourselves some more love. I'm sure we, and this sad old world, could do with it. And there's nothing narcissistic about that. Now, I thought I'd finish with a few more stories from friends. Tori wrote to me. She said that an ancestor of hers, Mary Angela Truskowska, was a Polish nun who was beatified by the Pope in 1993, so she must be a saint soon. Thomas said that he hasn't got any particular strange ancestors, but that his father was named after his older brother, who died as a baby in a bathtub accident, and that this has always struck him as quite creepy. I agree. Richard Rackham told me that his ancestor is famous. Calico Jack Rackham. Calico Jack, you can look him up. A pirate whose name checked, of course, in Pirates of the Caribbean, and was supposedly an influence on Hergé's Tintin book, uh, Red Rackham. I love that book. My old mate, Matt Kaplan's great aunt, was a truly famous dancer, Anne Sokolov. You can look her up too. My mate, David Duchan, tells me that one of his ancestors, Big Irvin Sharnik, was an accountant to, and Patsy for the mob, a confidant of Busty Siegel. David's mother remembers being bounced on the knee of Uncle Icepick, Icepick Louie. When Mayor Lansky ended Bugsy's life, Grandpa Irving hit the track and never came back, says David. And I think I'll finish with Nicola, who seems to have a whole plethora of interesting ancestors. Her grandfather did not have shoes until he was 18, despite the fact that his father was a shoemaker, but who spent his time breaking into homes on their island of Cyprus and stealing things and selling them to the British soldiers who were stationed there on the military base. He was known, apparently, as the Fox. Later, he retired to the mountains where he became a hermit. Her great-uncle George decapitated his wife in the backyard with an axe. Dear, oh dear, oh dear. I don't think I will end on that one. Instead, Rain wrote to me and said that his dad had told him that he has a great-grandpa who lived across the street from Frank Sinatra and that they both hated each other, but that his great-grandpa punched Mr. Sinatra in the face at some point. So, there we have it. Violence, love, time, the usual sort of stuff. Thanks to Rain, Nicola, Matt and all my correspondents, I really appreciated hearing from you, as I always do from any friends. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this oddcast from Radio Clerkenwell 666FM. You're going to be hearing more from me, more oddcasts, in the very near future. Because the real Tuesday world are finally about to embark on the last leg of their own voyage. In the meantime, I'd like to say to you, Happy Valentine's. See you next time. This is my valentine to you And I hope that it finds you Out there in the blue If you'll be mine I'll be your valentine And though this ain't just for a boy or a girl Though this is a love to the world come rain or shine I'll be your valentine 
So will you be my brother? 